The following Ivy podcast has been brought to you in partnership with Convene. It is the belief of business professor, former assistant secretary of state, and former U.S. Army officer John Hillen that as challenges get more sophisticated, a different set of strategic and interpersonal skills are required of leaders, ones that take inner work. Kicking off Ivy's new masterclass series, Hillen identified the common stalls or warning signs to look out for and provided tips and tools for assessing and overcoming these stalls. Based on his work with hundreds of leaders and organizations, Ivy members learned how to overcome these challenges, not with more tools, data, or analytics, but by radically changing their mindset, behaviors, and skills to reinvent themselves as a sophisticated leader. For, for those of you that lost your childhood to the original Call of Duty games, I'm uh, partially to blame. I was, I was a co-creator and a military advisor for the, all the World War II-themed Call of Duty games, uh, video games, which were meant to actually bring history to a new generation of people and did pretty well at it. Um, every year, the books that we highlighted in the games at Christmas time would spike tremendously. Um, so we were trying to drive people to books. It seems like a very old-fashioned notion of video game driving people to books, but it actually worked. Um, and about 95% of video games are sold between Thanksgiving and Christmas. So it's just like this big rush, and we would get the books and video games. It's pretty cool. But, I mean, we outgrossed every single movie, except maybe the top three movies every year. We had a $40 million budget. We had an 88-piece orchestra with an original score. We had Emmy Award-winning art directors. I got Brian Johnson from ACDC to be the voice of the Australian sergeant in one of these scenarios. We had actors. I mean, it was, it was amazing. It was real. It's like making a movie. It's a pretty cool industry. Anyway, Call of Duty. Not here to talk about that tonight, though. Uh, we're going to talk, we, this fellowship in the room, we're going to talk about um, leadership. How many folks in here are currently in a leadership position of some kind, a professional leadership position? Oh, lots. Okay. So the bosses are in the room. Okay, and the and the and the future bosses are in the room too, and uh, that's important. This book, the the guy who wrote the forward, uh, a fellow named Norm Augustine, very wise. You know, he's one of these, you know, just wise people. He's got like thirty-seven honorary degrees. He stood on both the North and the South Pole. He has this ridiculous biography, um, and he's run a bunch of companies, including one of the biggest aerospace, the, the biggest aerospace and defense firm, uh, Lockheed Martin. And he said in the forward, this is not a book about how to become a leader. This is a book about how to remain a leader. And the setting of this book is very different from a lot of leadership books. Becoming a leader books, the, the setting's like, okay, there's the mountain and you gotta climb it and we're gonna give you some you know, equipment and we're gonna show you the way and that kind of thing. And they're all very helpful. Other leadership books are more like you, like you come on an accident scene and you're like, oh, you know what happened here? And well, you know, this guy's laying there and the ambulance is there in that car. And our book is more like it's about 1.30, 2.30 in the morning at your big win party after something just incredible has happened in your business or your organization. And uh, two things are starting to occur to you. One is how crappy you're going to feel the next morning. And you're starting to like formulate excuses for why you're not going to be at work. And, uh, and the second thing is how different life's going to be because you had this amazing success. And what we found, Mark Nevins and I, who's, who's a, a Fortune 100 executive coach and uh, former head of organizational development at Booz Allen and Corn Ferry and a couple of other places, 
What we found is there's this unique setting, which is the leadership challenges after you're successful. Okay? So the setting of this book really is uh, what happens when you grow your or change your organization, but you don't grow or change. And what happens is leaders get outrun. Um, almost every organization, well, I can say every single organization I've worked with, led, been on the board of, I'm on five company boards right now, I teach in a business school, I've been a CEO of public and private companies. Every organization I've seen, touched, led, heard about makes plans to grow or change. Has anybody, has anybody in here been part of an organization that submits a business plan to stay exactly the same year after year? I and mean, I'm still trying to find one. There's got to be one out there somewhere, right? And there probably is, but very, very rare. So everybody makes plans to grow or change, even if you're just going through your annual budget exercise. Everybody makes strategic plans, business plans, plans to grow or change. A tiny percentage of those same firms or enterprises or NGOs or agencies, and we cover all those kind of organizations in the book, a tiny percentage of those organizations that make plans to grow or change make parallel plans with the same deliberation, the same thought, and the same planning to grow or change the leaders along with the organization. And yet at the same time, we all intuitively know that if you take the organization to a new level, it's playing at a new level. And if you're playing a new game at a new level, the game's changed. And you, the players, have to change. But we don't take it as seriously. So there's this phenomenon in organizations where the thing grows or changes because you wanted it to, you were successful. You put into place plans to grow or change it, but the people don't and they get outrun. And that's when you see conversations like, well, I think we're just gonna have to hire from the outside. Nobody here is capable of doing that, okay? I'll give you an example, people, finance people in finance here, okay, it's New York, you know, this right, finance town, right? Not more than that, surprise. Um, the job of a CFO, the job of a CFO in a small private company will often deal with treasury, payroll, uh, billing, vendor, supply management, all these other things, okay? Budget, all that. As soon as that company raises outside capital, especially if they go public, 80% of that CFO's job changes overnight, and 80% of their job becomes managing the investors, okay? And, and it's a totally different skill set from what they were doing to what they're now doing. Are they prepared for it? Well, we just kind of rolled the dice. We're like, well, you know, I hope she can do it. But actually, if you can see this stuff in advance, you can plan a professional development path to that. So that's what we wrote the book about. We, um, we don't believe in the Peter Principle, Mark and I. Has anybody heard of the Peter Principle? This is the idea that you rise to the level of your incompetence, okay? And then there's a ceiling that you put on yourself through which you'll never break because you're not capable of operating at a higher level, right? I heard this, I was uh, coaching a woman CEO and she was going for the next big job and, and I went to the board to talk and uh, the board said, you know, well, you know, she, she's not, she doesn't have boardroom presence. She doesn't have gravitas. We don't think she's ready for the next level. And I was like, oh, well, we'll just go to the gravitas store, right? We'll buy her some. And, I'm like, what, the, what does that mean, right? So I really kind of was trying to force them to talk about uh, you know, what they were talking about. And so we like to put ceilings on people. Sometimes we put ceilings on ourselves. We don't believe in that. We believe if you can see it in advance, if you can see the path in advance, then you can get there. So that's what the book's about. And I'll talk a little bit about it. And what we're gonna do is I'm gonna talk a little bit about it. I'm gonna introduce you to the way that we think through this. And, uh, and then we're gonna 
Then we're going to, well, maybe we'll have a little discussion, some general questions. Then we're going to split into groups and we're going to share with each other um, some, uh, some thoughts. Because usually what happens, I'm going to talk about seven stalls. Almost always one or two just grab people. They're like, that's my pain point. That's where I am right now. That's what my boss is killing me on. It just grabs you. And we'll, we'll share those stories. We'll get a chance to then come back to the group and share some. I'll walk through that when we're done. Uh, real quick, let me go into just talk about, give you another context to think about this. So in general, this is the basic path of any executive career. Okay? You start off doing at the beginning of your career over, over here on this axis. And at the height of your career, you're really not doing much. Okay? When I ran a big public company, I couldn't do anybody else's job in the company. I was the least useful person in the company if you, if you looked at it in terms of task. I had the least technical skills. I had the least tactical skills. I had no mastery of any particular element of engineering, software development, finance, operations, whatever. Right? So, because I was over here, my job was 100% leading. So, everybody goes through this do manage lead journey. The interesting thing is what happens to what you're doing hour to hour, day to day. Get the clicker rolling here. There we go. If you look at your hour to hour, day to day, week to week responsibilities, when you start your career, you're doing almost 100% technical and tactical things. Okay, so, and, and then even a little further into your career. So if I hire four accountants into a big cohort of accountants, at maybe two years in, I'm gonna promote one of them. I'll promote the best accountant, the best CPA, the one who's achieved technical mastery of the accounting craft. Okay, at the five-year mark, I might promote the best leader from among those four, not the best accountant, because now, on their day-to-day -day job, on their week-to-week -week job, on their month-to-month, quarter-to-quarter job, they're now starting to do strategic and interpersonal tasks and not just technical and tactical tasks. And then as you go throughout your career, the mix becomes even greater. You stop actually doing technical things and doing tasks, and you're simply doing strategic and interpersonal things. You're plotting the way forward for the organization. You're dealing with people. The, the best people, the most fun people to work with because they're so paralyzed by it when they get to the stage are technologists. Any real serious technologists in here? Like, like you code, you do, all right, so, right? So what happens with technology folks is when they, get, when they have to be a boss, they're like, oh, then I gotta manage people. People are really weird and, and sloppy and they're not binary and I can't like, you know, and a, lot of, and a lot of tech, you probably mastered it. You guys have mastered it. I can tell just by looking at you, right? You've mastered the weird substance of people. Um, but a lot of technologists really hate that transition because they, uh, they've mastered their craft, their engineering, their technology. They've, they've been able to bring order into the complexity that they deal with. And when all of a sudden you're, you're bought, you're half your life is managing people rather than managing technology, it's a messier business, right? And then of course, as people get up here, you know, they're, they're pretty much 100% leadership. We'll talk about the difference between management and leadership in here. So usually when there's more technical and tactical challenges, they're usually problems of complexity, and, by, and I'll explain more of this in a little bit. And if there's more strategic and interpersonal challenges, they're really challenges that challenge your sophistication as a leader. Things that challenge your complexity, you can engineer your way through. You're like, oh my God, I've got twice as many customers, twice as much budget. Uh, I'm, I'm now in four locations instead of one. 
this world is a lot more complex, but you can engineer your way through that. You'd be like, well, let's video conference every three days. That way we'll tie in all the locations. I once worked for a guy, actually right around the corner, is on Broad Street, 50 Broad Street, about 20 years ago. I was, a, for you in the finance, I'm a former Series 7, Series 24 brokerage principal. And, um, and uh, he said he lost control of the firm as soon as everybody moved out of one room. That's when he felt like he lost control. Right? So what did he do? He hired you know, like me, a management person, he had meetings. You can fix that. Strategic interpersonal things require you to become a more sophisticated leader. And that's what the book about. What we found in the book is there's seven stalls that leaders predictably go through. And that's what I want you to listen for and focus on and, and we'll talk about in the breakout group. See if any of these really kind of capture where you are in your life right now. Let me go through the seven stalls. Jordan, I may need you to manually click. Get no love from the clicker. All right, so um, I want you to, one more way to think about complexity versus sophistication. Um, think about it in the way of the light side of the moon and the dark side of the moon, right? Side of the moon you can see, and the side of the moon you can't. And in general, challenges of complexity can be seen. You know, as I said, more customers, more locations, more payroll, more products, uh, more, 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 right? If all of a sudden, you know, uh, you know uh, Kevin mentioned convenes growth, right? So adding another venue in order to help manage that, Convene's got all these lessons learned from all the things they're doing before. They've got a modus operandi, they've got a playbook they can apply. I'm assuming all these great things about your business. It could be chaos underneath there, Kevin. I have no idea, you guys could be so messed up, who knows, right? It's hard to tell from here, because this is an amazing venue, you know, right, an event. But, right, you can handle it. Whereas challenges of sophistication are not more of the same stuff, but more of different stuff. And that's a little bit like the dark side of the moon, which I'm trying to bring up here. Jordan, can you help me out with the fat finger there? There we go. Um, and the, the, reason, the reason we use this analogy is because these kind of things are not more of the same, they're different. So I'll go back to that CFO. You know, the CFO just doesn't have more stuff to manage that she knew how to manage when they were a private company, she now has totally different things to manage that require totally different skills. And, and her success in that is much more subtle. The things upon which she'll be judged by whether she does well or not are subtle. Okay, it's not a matter of submitting a report. It's a matter of winning the confidence of investors. It's not a matter of uh, getting the right data and the right analysis on the return on investment calculation on a new product. It's a matter of having the analyst who cover your company on the street trust your business plan and tell their investors what they think. You know, Norm, once again, Norm Augustine in, in the forward to the book said he was trained as an aerospace engineer, which is really useful if you're running the world's biggest aerospace engineering company. When he became CEO, he spent all his time with bankers, lawyers, politicians, regulators, and so on. He didn't do any engineering, and he was totally untrained for that. Okay, so we had to learn a whole new set of skills, and that's what we mean by challenges of sophistication. All right, we're clicking, we're clicking. All right, and, and what we found in the research and in our own research in the book, when these two things get confused, that's what creates stalls. So let me go through the stalls, talk about some of the warning signs and challenges on them. Can you click for me, Jordan? Thanks, pal. And, um, and I want you to keep these in mind as we go through. I'm gonna talk a little bit about the warning signs and I'll come back a, a little bit and talk about the, um, 
the, uh, some of the tools we give people to use in there. So the first stall we call uh, stall, the purpose stall. Okay? This is a very subtle stall. And we tell the story in the book of a guy named Mike Barnett. He runs a very successful software company that does event management software. And actually for big trade shows. Anybody, you know, as part of their life, go to big trade shows? You know, like 10,000 people, you know, that, you know, that kind of thing. I mean, it's just a madhouse, right? Well, Mike's software, it's a company called Ingo. It, it replaces in a very systematic, analytically driven way what we used to call great word of mouth. And you come back from this trade show and you say, you know, that was a great trade show because there were 10,000 people there, but I met and, and had really meaningful contact with the 50 people that I really needed to meet. But how do you know the 50 out of the 10,000? Well, Mike's software helps figure that out based upon relationships and LinkedIn and just scrapes all the social media and everything. It's pretty cool. So it's pretty complex. And as Mike was growing the company, he realized um, as new employees were coming on board, new customers on the Cobra, he couldn't explain his company to anybody. And he started it, right? He couldn't explain it to his mom. He couldn't explain it to his customers. In fact, once he was with his best customer, who just loved him to death, and sang his praises, and they ran into someone he wanted to be a customer. And the best customer said, shut up, Mike, I got this. I'll tell your story. And the best customer told it to the potential new customer, and Mike didn't understand a thing that was being said, right? He's like, nobody, I can't, I can't tell my purpose. What does purpose mean? It, it's a basket of things that give meaning and direction to customers, employees, stakeholders. It's um, mission, vision, value, strategy, uh, culture. Um, we like to say, anybody heard of Simon Sinek? You know, he has this great book, Start With Why. We like to say, start with, what are we about around here? It's a great question. If you think about it, you know, someone approaches you in the workplace, says, let's do this instead of that. And you can always frame it and say, well, how does that fit? What are we about around here? What are we about in our location? You know, that kind of captures culture and values and things like that. So the ability for leaders to, to creatively and concisely capture and be able to communicate in very rich ways. And we spent a lot of time in the book talking about the difference between lean communications and rich communications. Purpose. So that the new employee, three weeks in, not from the employee handbook that they had to read or the orientation presentations, but from other things that have been done about getting the narrative out about what we're about around here. When it's three in the morning and they've got to make a decision, are they going to call and wake up their boss? Or are they going to know whether I go left here or right here? Because they know what we're about around here. So that's what purpose does. It provides meaning and direction on top of all those other, all those other company things. So if you see people making decisions in your organization, you can't quite figure out why they made that decision. If you see folks trying to reach for reasons to do something, there's a meeting and everybody's like, well, let's run the data again. Let's, let's, uh, let's go talk to people. What is everybody else doing? You can sense when there's a kind of drift a drift of purpose in an organization. And, and in this chapter and all the chapters, what we do is we have warning signs and then test and then fixes and practical frameworks you can use to, to talk about it. The second stall is the team stall. Uh, one of the things we found in our research is that the more accomplished and the more um, uh, senior your team members are, the less likely they are to work it as a team, okay? The worst teams to manage are teams of all-stars, okay? I had, when I was a CEO, I had all these other C-level executives. They had all run big organizations. And, and my policy towards them as a team was benign neglect. And when they started kind of falling apart and not working really well together, I was like, I shouldn't have to babysit them, right? Have you seen how much I'm paying these people? 
right? They're grown-ups. They're adults. Okay, people do not naturally work together as a team. They might work together as what we call a working group. The difference between a working group and a team is probably best expressed if I compare it to any swimmers or track and field athletes in here. All right, so you know the difference. These are both individual sports, but they're team sports at the same time. But what happens is the individual results for each swimmer or each runner or each track and field participant are simply added up. And the team result is just simply the the uh, mathematics of adding up all the individual results. In fact, it's illegal to have more than, even during a relay, to have more than one swimmer in the lane at a time, right? Um, whereas if you look at water polo or basketball or something, every movement of every other person in the pool or on the court changes that moment of the game for everybody else, right? So it's a totally different environment, a team versus a working group. Most executives prefer to be in a working group. They prefer to say, hey, give me my patch, stay out of my way, I'll let you know if I need help, I'm going to achieve, I'm going to give you achievement, it'll be praiseworthy, I expect to be praised for my achievement, and then, you, and then you, boss, you add that stuff up and get a team result out of it, right? Um, and this is very common, we talk in the book actually about the 2004, this is the last sports analogy I'll make, the 2004 uh, U.S. Olympic basketball team, I don't know if anybody remembers that, all Hall of Famers, Kobe Bryant, LeBron James, uh, Carmelo Anthony, um, struggled to a bronze medal, lost three games, and, and was, like, it was hugely embarrassing for the U.S. Um, because they were the most best basketball players on the planet, didn't play remotely together as a team. Okay? So uh, teams are really difficult. And what we talk about in the book, and I'll, and I'll show you a tool here in a little bit, is your role as the leader in that team. A lot of leaders don't want to own their teams. It's really interesting. Uh, so uh, there's a lot about that phenomenon we talk about in the book. So the team stall is likely one, no matter what point in your career, you'll encounter sooner rather than later. Okay, the next stall, we're clicking, we're clicking. All right, is the stakeholder stall. I alluded to this a little bit with the story of the CFO. Um, but the, the stakeholder stall is when, who are you spending time with in your life to manage? You know, who are you touching base with, not only to get your job done, but to have a strategic network above and beyond your day-to-day -day job, okay? As you move throughout your leadership life, you need to spend less time with people that you can control and more time with people who can influence your future but you don't control. And a lot of people don't like that, okay? Especially bosses. Bosses like to hang out with people they can control, people who work for them, current customers, current suppliers, vendors, things like that, okay? They don't like to hang out with uh, people who might have huge influence over them, uh, but they can't control, okay? Most people like their comfort zone to be where they can be a little bit in charge. But actually, one of the key things you can do in your leadership life, and this, Ivy's kind of a really good setting for it, is build a strategic network of people outside of your industry and outside of your your immediate profession. So if you're in finance, get to know HR people. If you're in HR, get to know salespeople. If you're in sales, get to know operations people. Not in your company, perhaps not even in your industry, okay? And what you're doing is you're building a, net, a strategic network of relationships that are non-transactional. This is not a I scratch your back, you scratch mine. This is a I exist and you exist. And I think we can learn from each other over the course of time. I wanna learn from you right now. And I'm available for you. I'm available here if anything comes up. It may seem a little bit weird. You're actually doing it in an Ivy by getting to know people and from all different kind of walks of life in the city here. 
Um, but you want to build that strategic relationship. If you wait until you need a relationship, as you go up your leadership life, it's too late to build it. You know? And that's what happens all the time. People are like, oh shit, I suddenly got a new job. I'm the new boss. Oh no, I really rely on the finance folks in Omaha at company headquarters. I don't know anybody in Omaha, right? Well, you know, this is a good time to start preparing for those things in your leadership life. So we talk a lot about that in the stakeholder stall, and I'll show you a tool we use to manage that coming up. Next stall. All right. Is uh, the leading change stall. Leading change is the most difficult thing for leadership. Um, this is really where you know the difference if you're managing or leading. If you're a manager in your organization, you're generally being asked to apply a known playbook to a set of problems. It's a really important job. I'm not, I'm not denigrating it at all, but it is different from leadership. Managers bring uh, order to chaos and complexity. They apply the playbook. They're like, hang on now, people. We have a system for this. You know, we do this first, we do that second, we do this, we budget here, we, we do the technology here, we bring in the lawyers here, right? There's a playbook. Leaders create the playbook while it's going on, okay? Leaders, if you're a leader in your organization, your job is not to run the organization you are, it's to create the organization you ain't, okay? That's the leader's job. And it's a very, very different skill set because you're trying to convince people to go into a future that hasn't yet happened. That's why we call it the future. Yeah, um, and that's just scary for a lot of people. You can pass out as many copies of Who Moved My Cheese as you want. People don't like change, okay? You can have the exercises. You can bring an old hill in and he'll facilitate a thing and everybody will trust. We'll do trust falls everywhere and you know, everybody will be like, hey, change. And they go back to the desk and like, God, I hate change. Um, okay, it's natural. It's human. So how do you not, how do you get people to not hate change? You gotta, you gotta, you gotta give it, you got to give them comfort on their terms, not yours. This is a very hard lesson for me as a CEO. I did like four quick acquisitions after we went public. Um, and uh, I was talking with one of the acquisitions and I was telling about how amazing the future is going to be and all these slides about how we were going to conquer the world and we're all going to get richer than Cretius and we're king, kings of the whole world. And um, I just had a bunch of people in the audience that were just all like this. Like they were not buying a thing I was selling. And these really, really bright, these were like crypto mathematicians. I mean, people with you know, really bright, you know, advanced degrees and all this stuff. And um, I came back and I was very frustrated. And I said to one of my partners, I said, you know, that's like the 10th time I've told him that. And he said, and I said, and they're not getting it. He's like, a room full of crypto mathematicians, all PhDs, not getting it. I'm like, yeah, they're just not very bright. And, uh, and, he, and he said, uh, you know, maybe the problem's you. And, uh, and yeah, it was a real aha moment for me. I mean, I'm a decent communicator as a CEO, and the problem was me. Because I was telling him about the change, all the great ways the change is going to affect him on my terms. And it was not on their terms, right? I didn't even take the time, because I was selfish, to understand their value system so I could speak on their terms, right? So I had to completely rewind and start all over and just have a highly dialogic small group meetings with them and say... You know, what matters to you? I couldn't say it directly, right? You had to get to these things kind of indirectly. But I had to sense, what matters to you? What do you value? And then I had to repackage the change we wanted in ways that appealed to them, okay? Broadcasting is not receiving, okay? And that was a hard lesson for me to learn. So I'm like, well, I got, I got, I got the fancy lavalier mic, right? Whatever I say goes. Uh, now, it's what they're hearing and how individually motivated they're going to be after you leave the room and, and go back to your office that matters to your team. Um, so leading change is very, very difficult, 
And it really starts with, and I'll, and I'll talk about a couple of tools we give people in here. It starts with um, taking a lot of time to listen, be highly dialogic with people to understand the value system of the people you're trying to lead for the change, and then re-express the change on their terms. The uh, fifth stall is, uh, are you doing this, Jordan, or am I doing this? Because I don't think I'm doing anything. I'm just pressing buttons. Oh, thanks. And you are? Hey, thanks. You're doing great. You're doing great. All right, thanks. I'd like everybody to meet my co-instructor. Um, great, so uh, the fifth stall, this is a really important one for you guys because I, I think a, a, a bunch of you will see in your career, but it's very subtle. This is the stall, you really see this stall when all of a sudden you go to a meeting and you're the decision maker in the meeting and you know less about the topic under consideration than everybody else in the meeting. That's when you're in this stall, okay? Because then you should have this little healthy moment of panic and the panic is, if I know less about this than everybody else in the room, why should anybody follow me? That's the question for this stall. Why should anybody follow me? Okay. And what happens in a career is at a certain point, and it's usually about midway through your career, but you don't really pick up on it till later in your career. And this is where, this is where that ceiling comes in for a lot of people. And particularly, we tell the story of, of an executive in the book who just, you know, um, his reaction when it came time to get promoted, he's like, I'll just outwork the next guy. I'll just learn more. I'll get more certifications. I'll get more degrees. I'll, I'll know all the customers better. I'll spend more time with the balance sheet, right? Piling and piling on these technical and tactical skills, demonstrating a mastery of the business. When in fact, what was happening at this point in his career was, at that point, people don't follow you for what you can do. They follow you for who you are. They care less about your competence Stuff on your resume, right? All those great certifications and achievements you have, they care less about that. They care more about your judgment. Okay, we have an old expression in executive recruiting. You hire people for what they can do, you fire them for who they are, okay? And look at the careers of some of these executives, right? Especially this trail of scandals over the last 20 years in, in corporate America and elsewhere. We're not firing them because they don't know their business, right? The guy who ran Enron was number one in his class at Harvard Business School. Yeah, has anybody seen that documentary, Smartest Guys in the Room? Yeah, right, right? It's not, it's not about the smarts, okay? It's about character, judgment, rectitude. I'll talk a, a little bit more about it in a minute. So how do you know that's coming? How do you know that's coming when people are not following you because of what you can do, but they're following you because who you are? And how do you build a, how do you build a who you are resume versus a what you can do resume? Okay, anybody read David Brooks in the New York Times? He talks about this a little bit. You know, how do you have a resume Think about your eulogy or your resume instead of your job interview, right? What do you want them to be saying about you? So I'll, I'll talk a little bit about this. We've even got a little film clip I want to show there. Six stall, very, very potent stall. Um, I could just ask you here, this hits people early. Does anybody in here feel in complete control of your professional life? You determine every move of it every day. Anybody? Any masters of the universe, their own universe in here? Okay. Yeah, it's very rare. Here's what the research shows, just to get you really excited about the rest of your career. The higher you go in your career, the more you achieve, the less control you're gonna have over your own life, okay? And the more you're gonna feel that you're trapped by your email inbox or your text, uh, you're completely hostage to the people around you, you do nothing but fight fires, right? This is the life of an executive. 
And most executives really, really, and these are all warning signs that we have in the book. Most executives really, really struggle with uh, putting their agenda ahead of everybody else's. I used to love when I was a boss, someone would come in, I, you know, because I'm, I'm in the enlightened boss, right? So I'm like, I have an open door policy, um, which sometimes is a good idea and sometimes is a bad idea. So people, would like, people would poke their head in the door, you know, be like, hey, boss, you got a sec? Of course I have a sec because I'm the listening enlightened boss, right? And, uh, and they'd be like, great, because I got this total big problem. And I'm thinking to myself, I got this little track running in my head. That's really good because I was, I was wide awake at four o'clock this morning thinking about the 100 huge problems I've got. And I can't wait for you to tell me 101 because I'm just like looking for another one, man. Thanks. Right? But I'm not going to say that. I'm going to listen. I'm going to take on more problems. So what happens? That's your life, right? People just throw things at you if you're the boss and they want you to solve it, which is nice. They have confidence in you. They're you know, following. They're, they're showing some trust and confidence in you. Um, how do you take control of that, though? How do you take control of your own state? How do you turn? How do you have people coming in and saying, I'm here because I want to take some problems off your plate? Because I know you have 100. How do you get back control of that agenda? I'll talk about that in a little bit. And then finally, the last stall is the leadership development stall. Okay? Tell a story in here of a guy named Trevor Boyce. He runs the biggest private medical laboratory testing firm in the U.S., which he assembled through acquisitions over many years. And uh, at one point, he just like almost totally lost control, almost had a nervous breakdown. I mean, just... He was doing so much stuff. He was running around to these 15 different heritage companies and stitching them all together and convincing the scientists who had the patents to stay involved and doing all the things that you do when you roll up an interesting medical device and laboratory testing company. And all of a sudden you realize that he was working in the business when the only way he'd be successful if he was working on the business. And he changed his life entirely, his professional life. He stopped trying to do finance, operations, science, customer stuff, things like that. Not entirely, but he took half it off his plate. And he just, he, he spent half his time developing other leaders in the company. And he said, I'm not in the medical device business anymore. I'm in the leadership development business. Okay. And he wasn't trained for it. And he just got some resources and just started doing it. And he just spent time coaching and mentoring and bringing others along. Because the definition of leadership is you achieve through others, right? And so and we tell a story in, in the book of, of a guy who's got a coffee mug in his office. And on one side, it says boss. And on one side, it says coach. And depending on what kind of meeting you're in with him, he flips the mug. So if you come in and it's a boss meeting, you see boss. And if it's a coach meeting, you see coach. Now, I'm not sure that technique works for everybody, right? But, but you can see what, what he's getting at, right? The better leaders that we know, interviewed, and what the research showed that can really scale the organization and stay out ahead of it and not get outrun, spend more and more time doing nothing but mentoring, coaching, and developing others. And they do it at the expense of what they're being paid to do. Okay, It's the single best investment of their time. I'll talk about some tools for that in a minute. All right, so let me go on. I'm going to finish out the stalls. Um, and I'm going to go on. We can click through one more. Maybe I am clicking. I, I, get, I, I like the appearance of control. This, uh, that works for me. Wait, one more, thanks. Great. Oh, it's totally me, right? Um, okay, so if you're going to defeat the storytelling stall, um, you've got to really become the torchbearer for the organization. So this means owning the narrative, um, uh, creatively and repeatedly putting it out there, and mostly doing it through small groups.
Big town halls are great. People don't learn except in small groups, okay? And how do you, and we talk a lot about the difference between rich and lean communications, and we give a couple of tools. Uh, culture is very important. You gotta be a cultural, cultural warrior in your organization and enforce the value system in the organization. For a teamwork stall, as I alluded to before, if you could click through, uh, you've got to really commit to the team. We don't, this is Patrick Lencioni's book, Five Dysfunctional Team is fantastic. We do exercises on it. We're not telling you how to fix a team. We're telling you how to fix yourself to do well on the team. And one of the tools we have in here, if you can do one more click, is, and you, the words aren't important, which is why they're a little bit blurred out, um, but this is, this is all in, in the book and elsewhere, is we, got, we have a team charter. And the team leader needs to get everybody to sign up to a team charter. And it does very basic things that we do when we work with teams, uh, you know, about who's doing what, why are we here, why do we exist, how do we know when we win, and then really importantly, what are our expectations of each other, okay? Uh, how do we, you know, how do we communicate? How do we make decisions? How do we solve conflict? You know, not only what are our expectations of each other, but if I have a problem with you, what's the accepted way we work it out? Right? Usually, the general corporate answer is extreme passive aggressive behavior. Right? Right? How many people have a, have a charter with their team where you've all almost literally signed up to it that says, if we have a conflict, this is the way we solve it? Okay? Really, really important. This is, this is our commitment to reflecting and improving on ourselves. How often do we come back together, assess ourselves, perhaps with some outside support, and decide where we need to improve as a team? Okay, so we have a bunch of tools in here like the team charter that allow you as the leader to take back charge of your team and have a leadership role in it. Now the next slide, please. Uh, the stakeholder stall, I'll give you a tool here. I talked a little bit you know, about building a strategic network. We click through one more in order to build your reach, but it's also important to do a stakeholder map, and we have several in the book, if you could, one more click. This is an example, I talk about this, you can imagine this horizontal line is the line of your control, and underneath that are, are you know, people who work for you, people right around you, perhaps your, your customers, your vendors, your suppliers, all those, all those kind of things. The people above, including your competition, your competition, your, your, your competition are stakeholders, and we have a thing in there about how to determine influence, power, and control, so you know time to spend. But if you sat down and listed all the stakeholders that are important to your future and the future of your organization that you're responsible for, and then charted how much time you're spending with them, most people, most executives are really, really surprised. They're spending most of their times with the ones that have the least uh, long-term influence over them and the least amount of time with the ones that have, can have the most long-term influence over them. So a stakeholder map is a really, really powerful tool. Then you gotta do something about it, right? So, so you, you've gotta, You've got to change your behavior and spend time with the outsiders. Okay, next slide, please. Uh, for leading change, we have a lot in there. I already talked about getting the value system, a lot in there about understanding the value system of the people you're leading. Um, if you click one more. Um, but we call it being the chief explaining officer, okay? And once again, it's not explaining on your terms, explaining the other terms, but I'll, I'll let that chapter speak for itself. Um, for the stall and authority, I'm gonna show a, a quick little 30 second clip here. Uh, this is, you know, how do you become this authoritative figure who people will follow because of who you are rather than what you do? So I'm going to talk about this. Okay, this is from a movie called The Crossing, um, which is right before the crossing of the Delaware. And this really talented British general who's fighting for the revolutionaries challenges George Washington to control of the army. 
okay? And George Washington, at this point, is really bad at his job. He's like 0-6, okay? And he, he just kind of sucks at his job. And uh, so this general challenges him. So um, I want you to watch this clip. It's not important to see the characters. You'll be able to hear it. Um, but I, watch this, and then we'll answer the question. Okay? So what, what Gates is a complete master of the business, complete mastery of the craft, Washington by his own admission as a bumbling Virginia farmer. So why, why would anybody follow George Washington? What has he got? Anybody? What kind of qualities has he got that might have earned that? What he says is he's got the trust of everybody. He's got, I'm sorry? Commonality with, with everybody else, right? He's got passion. What other things did you see just in that little clip? Anybody else? I'm sorry? Humility. He's not afraid to admit. Yeah, I may be bad at my job. He had vision. He cared, he cared about things. Gates is like, ah, oh, let's give it up. This vision sucks. Right? Washington's like, no, I actually believe in it. He had belief. All these things earn trust. You get, you get a sense for this thing of how do I sense people's character rather than their skills? Right? And we'll get a chance to talk about that in the groups. Uh, next slide, please. Uh, the sixth stall, the stall in focus, how you spend your time and investment. I'm going to show you one of the tools from the book. Uh, next, if you could click once more, how do I take back control of my life? Anybody ever seen the urgent versus important matrix? This was repopularized by a guy named Stephen Covey 20 years ago. It was actually invented by, by Dwight Eisenhower um, uh, because he had a really tough job at one point in his life, and he was having a hard time doing the important stuff and not fighting fires. So he developed this. Okay, very few people spend time in this sector of their life. The most important things, but things that don't have to be done that day. Have you, have you been able in your life to put aside two hours, like a couple of days a week to do stuff that nobody's asking you about? Yeah, that's good, right? That, that, that means, you know, if you're like a mirror, you're mastering, you know, moving the importance. We say this is important, but then you add on two layers. All the research shows that, that if you spend time Trying to do things where you have low skills or low energy, you're going to get a very low return on your investment. Anybody done Strength Finders or something like that? The research in Strength Finders is very compelling. Um, the older you get, the less time you should spend trying to fix your weaknesses. Okay, you should know them. You should have amazing awareness about your weaknesses, and you should recruit people to pack in around you to cover your weaknesses. Okay, so when I was a CEO, the book on me was. One of my owners said, long on vision, short on precision. Okay, and I was like, I'll take it, uh, right? Because I can find precision. I got the best CFO in the business. I got all raised, right? I, best numbers people. Right? But vision was in kind of short supply. I mean, I did not IP. I didn't want 25 IPOs in the middle of the uh, recession in 2009. So only 25 IPOs in the entire American economy that year. And we pulled it off. And it was because we had this great combination of skills of, uh, on the team. So spend time where you have high energy. And be honest about where you have low energy and get it done elsewhere. And then be ruthless about delegating. Just be ruthless, okay? Try to think, try to whiteboard with your team. What are the three things only I can do? And then give everything else to somebody else. Otherwise, you'll never have time to come down here and develop the business you're not, which is your job as a leader. And there's more tools in the book. Next slide, please. And the last one. Stall in leadership development. I mentioned more and more leaders as they get, as the organizations get bigger. If you could, uh, 
One more click, please. Two more clicks, actually. You've got to figure out how to become a leader of leaders. A lot of people are intimidated by this. They're like, look, I'm not an HR person. I'm not trained. What do I know about leadership development? You care about your people, you'll figure it out, right? You'll figure out how to be a coach and a mentor. It's, it's, it's always funny. When, when we do this exercise, we, we have it in the book, it's called Your Ideal Leader. People have no problem coming up with their idea of what an ideal leader is. It's usually a coach or teacher or boss or parent or something that really affected them in their lives or a combination of personality traits from people like that. And, they, and yet, then they say, but I'm not equipped to help people become that. Sure you are. You can talk about it. You can do it. So the next slide, please. One of the things we do, one of the tools we give is called a nine box matrix. Uh, this is a way to um, look at people on a performance versus potential. And everybody's different and they change. Okay. Every boss should be evaluating their people and putting them into one of these nine boxes, not with the purpose of typecasting somebody, but with the purpose of giving those people different leadership development plans, okay? If you're uh, solid on performance and solid on potential, okay, then you need a different leadership development plan because they're gonna try to grow, grow you north, okay? If you're just someone who loves to do their job and doesn't wanna do anything else in the future or anything, you have a different leadership development plan, right? And then the high potentials, you know, who, who, are, who are maybe got lower performance, they have a different. So this is what one of several tools we give people in the book just to say, always sit down with your people. And by the way, if your boss isn't doing this for you, if you don't know what box you're in, they owe that to you. Go ask them. Go say, hey, what, what's my path here? How are you involved? What's the leadership development plan? By the way, I'll share with you my opinions if you don't have any on me. And da 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 da. That's a really interesting conversation to have with your boss. Okay, next slide, please. And then we give a couple of tools that kind of pull it all together. We've got a big complex thing in there that, that if you want, you can just say, this is my leadership growth plan, where you have to fill in all this stuff and you see how it fits together. And, and uh, it's not important to the words that you'll see, in, you'll see in the book and also on our website, if you want it off the website, uh, the tools we have in there. So next slide, please. So the real aha of the book for us, because we started writing a book about how to fix organizations, and we realized, who cares about how to fix organizations? We're like, it starts with the leader. So uh, next click, please. I just need two more. So everybody tinkers with the organizations. The real secret to conquering sophistication, these new challenges that require you to have strategic and interpersonal skills that you can't get a degree for, but you need to train to, is to reinvent yourself. You click one more. Okay, and that's really, really hard. It's really, really hard for leaders. This requires changing your behavior, changing your mindset, and changing your skills, and that's a real commitment. Actually, just by being here tonight, you've committed to it, which is a really nice feather in your cap, unless you just came for the booze. Um, and, I, and I respect that, okay? But uh, this could be a step to, you know, just having the awareness for reinvention. Next slide, please. I wanna get into what we're gonna work on. So that's the book, and there's a website, yada, yada, yada. Um, next slide. All right, so I'm going to keep this up. So what we're going to do, the hard part of this exercise is you're going to have to self-organize into groups of four or five people. Okay? All right? Right. See, like, this, the new boss, it's Lisa. Yeah, Lisa's a new boss. She's like, I got this. I got four people right now. Right? She's like, I got it. Um, and uh, so, yeah. So I want you to self-organize into groups of four or five. We're going to take, it's 20 of, we're going to take 15 minutes, because it doesn't get better after 15 minutes. And if you need some, you know, some Dutch courage for it, you can zip to the bar and zip back. Um, and what I want you to do is I want you guys to have a conversation. Try to share if you can, be an active listener, 
Be respectful to your colleague. Be an active listener. Don't try to dominate the group. 15 minutes. And I want you to share some things. If one of these stalls grabs you for some reason, okay, someone in the group might really be in, in a situation or seeing something or something. I want to see if one of these stalls grab you or is particularly compelling. And then what I want you to do is kind of nom, you know, think about it, pick one as a group, and then you know, nominate a spokesperson. And when we come back together, just a little bit before nine, we're going to quickly share in our groups. Someone will stand up and say, here's what we talked about, and here's the one that, that we thought, and this is the reason why. It requires some sharing. It requires a little courage if you want to tell a personal story. It's all good. We're, all, we're in the cone of trust here, right? Although we're being videotaped, so you know, uh, we'll make fun of you on the video for the rest of your life. Um, but, uh, but anyway, have that discussion, okay? And then we'll share a little bit. about. It doesn't have to be about you necessarily. Um, you could say it's about a friend. Uh, I have this friend. She's really struggling. Uh, okay, so pick a stall that you think, and then we'll share some thoughts about some of the common ways to see it, test for it, and work out of it. Okay, so 15 minutes. Be the Ivy leaders. I know you are. Go. That's our show for this week. Thanks again for tuning in to the Ivy Podcast by Ivy, the social university. We are the grad school for life, and our mission is to spark world-changing collaborations by introducing you to the most inspiring people, ideas, and experiences in the world. Check us out at ivy.com for life-changing advice and gatherings, and the foremost thought leaders shaping our world today. For more information about the Ivy community, and to find out about events happening near you, visit ivy.com and email us via membership at ivy.com. Dream big and stay inspired.